Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. As we wrap up another year of covering news stories across New Mexico, one thing worth reflecting on and something we know is a big concern for people living here is violent crime. In 2021, we saw a record year of homicides and comparing stats, we've surpassed that number of homicide cases and victims that we had in Albuquerque during this same time last year. But there's also something else worth mentioning. That is the number of cases that have been solved. Albuquerque police has actually one of the highest clearance rates for homicide cases over the last several years. When you compare this year's numbers to the last several years, it's around 90% this year in calendar year 2022. And that's out of more than 100 homicide cases that detectives have investigated in 2022. And here with us to talk about it is returning podcast guest and Albuquerque Police Deputy Commander Kyle Hartsock. He's part of the leadership team at APD in the Criminal Investigations Division, helping to solve homicides in our city. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. So first, a little bit more about your background for our listeners. If you don't know who Kyle Hartsock is, you're now a mobile device forensics and location forensics expert, deputy commander with APD. But before that, you've been the special agent in charge of criminal investigations at the second judicial district attorney's office here in Bernalillo County. And you've also worked as a detective in the ghost unit right at Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office, helping to solve cyber crimes against children. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we did we did human trafficking really. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't just cyber crimes, but what we got really good at is you know making evidence heavy cases as opposed to victim testimonial heavy cases, and that is a big change for a prosecutor and for a court. They want to see evidence. Juries want to see evidence as opposed to hear about witness accounts. Got so it. I guess that is what I focused on, and that's what we're bringing to APD. Yeah. So with all of that expertise, you're now a part of the Digital Intelligence Team, or DIT, at Albuquerque Police, where it sounds like you're really utilizing technology more to solve violent crimes, right? Absolutely. But that team has now expanded. Actually, we just went through a hiring round from three members to seven. So it's now more than doubling in size. So now we cannot just look at uh, homicides primarily. We're going to be looking at other non-fatal gun violent crimes, armed robberies, sexual assaults, crimes against children, um, even shoplifting cases. Uh, We can apply this tech to any crime type. Perspective-wise, how exciting is that? How much more of a factor do you think that will be in solving crime in the city? I think it's going to be a huge factor. And kind of like I told you guys before, it's going to become more of a staple of criminal investigations. It was always this kind of like a, a nuanced thing that maybe some cops were kind of good at. And it's actually going to be a mainstay the same way that fingerprinting was once boutique and it was once specialized and you had to call like a guy with FBI to do it. And now every cop out of the academy has a fingerprint kit and understands how to get them. That's where we're going with phones. And our department is leading the state, um, absolutely leading the state with progress on making full time employees do this as part of their daily job. And that's a good reminder. We did another episode where we, as you alluded to, we talked a lot more about, you know, the work you do with the uh, digital intelligence team. So you can 
listen to that episode as well as kind of a primer for this conversation. Yes. Let's talk about the numbers for a second. Uh, some of the numbers show as of December 6th, APD has 108 homicide cases for the 2022 calendar year and 115 victims. For comparison, in all of 2021, which was a record year for Albuquerque, APD logged 108 homicide cases and 112 victims. With a new record being set this year, what do you see as maybe one of those contributing main factors to so many homicides again this year? I wish I had this really clear answer for you guys, because I get asked this and we get asked this at the department several times a week. And I, hindsight is the only thing that's going to help us out here years from now. You know, I think there could be lots of factors here. Um, there was a global pandemic, and I know that's the default answer to almost everything, but I don't know how that I, probably doesn't have some influence on it. Um, yeah, it, just behave, change behavior in so many ways. Change behavior. You know, we've seen a, a rise in um, um, robbery homicides with drug deals that are set up on social media. So the rise of social media and the big push for um, visual video and photos being shared, you know, show, show your bag of uh, fentanyl pills. You can post it to a really wide group of hundreds of thousands of residents of Albuquerque. And only it takes one person who wants to rob you to set you up and maybe lose your life over that drug deal. That is something that didn't really exist this way even five years ago. That's new. I read a report that the amount of gun sales when the pandemic started just shot through the roof. So just the physical amount of guns on the street, guns get stolen, guns, there's straw purchasing where a person buys a gun for someone that shouldn't have it. So, I mean, that could be a factor. And in reality, it's probably little bits of all these things uh, because other cities that have, they don't really share any demographic with the, the with Albuquerque are seeing the same spike. Um, and some don't see a spike at all. And it's not really clear what's different. So I, I, I think we're not, we're not far enough removed from it to understand it or at a high enough elevation to, to see it clearly yet. Last year around this time, we did a similar um, podcast topic with Albuquerque Police Chief Harold Medina, who I know also has history in the property crimes unit, which I wanted to ask you about as well. We know a lot of property crimes are often labeled as, you know, drug related this year, we heard a lot about the fentanyl crisis, which is a synthetic opioid that's highly addictive and cheap on the streets. If you don't aren't familiar with what fentanyl is, the DEA says it's been coming across the border from Mexico in droves. Are you seeing that drugs are fueling a lot of our violent crimes and homicides as well? Yeah. So fentanyl, I'll start there, is absolutely exploded in terms of popularity in Albuquerque and lots of major American cities. It is easier to make for, for the cartels, essentially, that are bringing it across. It looks like a pill you could buy at a Walgreens or CVS. So there's like a normalcy to it. It's not this isn't a needle in your arm, a brown sticky substance in tinfoil. A meth pipe. These are all like very like, ooh, dirty drugs. Fentanyl looks like you had a headache and took it, but it can kill you. Um, so I think that's part of it. And the price has just plummeted. Four or five years ago, I myself set up a, a drug deal for fentanyl online as part of a criminal case. Let me make sure you know it's a criminal case. Right. Okay. And and we were paying $15 to $20 a pill. And if we bought, you know, more than 100, we got it down to like $10 a pill. You can go out right now and buy a fentanyl pill for $3 in the same marketplace. So it's, it got cheap uh, and it's very potent. But we, so we see drug deals for fentanyl 
definitely on the rise, especially with our some of our violent crime, because it's a, it's a drug and people want this power over the drug to sell it and distribute it. And that can absolutely cause conflict. But then we look at also meth is still this really big, dirty problem in Albuquerque. And more if you look at the some of the offenders and we wait for toxicology reports of officer involved shootings and some of our more unusual crime sprees of individuals. We see from the family members that talk to us and when the tox reports come back, meth is a bigger factor in there. And meth and fentanyl are two different drugs. One, one's an upper basically and one's a downer. One slows you down, you know, you might look like out of it, strung out, that's fentanyl. Meth will keep you awake for three days. Um, so they're both just terrible. I mean, they're all, they're all terrible, but we see those two drugs still as a, as a primary actor in a lot of these violent and and property crimes um and when it comes to property crimes you know the one thing i'll say is in january we arrested four or five individuals for a robbery murder and they were trying to steal fentanyl and two of the people that were charged were just fentanyl drug addicts they had no criminal history no arrest they were questioned by police and they said i'm just i was a drug addict i really wanted fentanyl that guy had a gun and we thought like, yes, we should rob some fentanyl so I can get high. They were just in the car. They didn't get out of the car. They didn't touch the gun. They didn't fire the gun. They didn't say shoot that guy. The judge held him till trial and stated in there, your drug addiction is so bad that you are willing to take these really dangerous risk and someone has lost their life. So I'm gonna keep you in jail until trial because if you're willing to set a drug dealer up with someone else that has a gun, you're, you're dangerous. I can't, I can't contain this. So it was an interesting ruling from the, the judge saying, you are just a drug addict, I get it, but you let that addiction turn into a, a conspiracy to, to rob someone and now someone's shot and killed. Um, so it's important to, to look at someone and say they're an addict, they need help, but we can't just say that nothing bad will ever happen to anyone else besides the addict, right? Or the parent that they steal from or the store they shoplift from. That that need for the drug can become so desperate that violence is, is very real and very imminent around it. How do you define like a drug fueled homicide then or, or categorize that? We look at what was the what was the the behavior of the victims, one. And it's not victim blaming, but like, hey, we can read their text messages, we can we can talk to the the girlfriend or boyfriend who can tell us this is what they were doing and say, hey, what was the victim doing at the time they died? Like, what was their intent? Were they at work? Were they selling drugs? Were they buying guns? So we focus on the behavior of the victim to help us understand why were they meeting up, even though they got deceived, right? Why were they meeting up? And then we look at what was the likely motivation of the other person. Um, and if it was to rob them, right, the motive on the, the murder is robbery. The victim behavior was selling drugs. And that's how we start to categorize these things to better understand and that's where, as a department, we took an initiative to go on social media, make ourselves known that police are on here. If you're posting drugs, you might be buying from us and we might arrest you because we can now see that selling drugs online is leading to these robberies. And we want to try to be proactive in that arena as well. When it comes to the types of homicide cases, right, we hear a homicide and we know somebody has been killed by another person, but there's a wide range of factors that could be involved in that, you know. I guess the point is, is that not every homicide is just a random whodunit, right? Sometimes uh, it's related to drugs. Sometimes it's a crime of passion. Sometimes it's a road rage. 
And I wanted to ask you, at least in Albuquerque, where do we maybe see the majority of our homicides happening? Is there a particular category that stands out more than others? Yeah, let me just reinforce what you said. It is categorically very, very rare that a random person is targeted for a killing. In, in active shooters, you get that, sure. Um, but of these hundred and, and, and some number that we're at right now, it's we, we can't even, I can't even think at the top of my head of a random murder that happened this year. But that doesn't mean that they don't happen fast, that the plan to kill someone or hurt them develops just five or six seconds before. But there was some behavior that led up to it, right? A road rage is a great example. I mean, everyone listening to this, if you have a driver's license, you've gotten so mad in your car that you you had some wild um, fantasies of what could happen next. It might have just been with your horn and a finger on your hand. But nonetheless, you got really upset. But in these other cases, people let it go too far. A gun was involved. And just like that, within 30 seconds of their life, they decided to shoot at someone and maybe maybe take their life. So it can develop quickly. And a lot of our murders are not premeditated, sometimes beyond a few minutes. What's the main motive? It's, it's really two categories. One is the robberies I already talked about. But the one bigger than that, we call it individual disrespect. It's nothing more than I don't like what you just said to me, how you looked at me. I heard what you said to someone else about me. Everyone in this in this audience has had this happen. It was probably in middle school, right? But it can still happen. I mean, it happens in professional workplaces. Um, the, the difference is the shooter or both people maybe have a little bit more emotional regulation problems than, than other people in society. And that can be linked to ACEs and childhood trauma and and lots of other things to explain it. And they have access to a gun most of the time. Mm-hmm. That's it. If they don't have access to a gun, this is a this is a fist fight. This is a shove a shoving match. The friends jump in. Our big difference is someone pulls a gun and now all of a sudden it's this other thing. The obvious case that brings to mind when you talk about that is the UNM and MSU. We now know exactly what led up to the deadly shooting on UNM's campus that left 19-year-old Brandon Travis dead and 21-year-old NMSU basketball player Michael Peak in the hospital with a gunshot wound. Well, new court documents show Peak was lured to campus by a female student who was all part of her friend's plans to jump him. According to court documents, Brandon Travis, Jonathan Smith, and Eli, whose last name is not mentioned, intentionally targeted Peak. They told police they wanted revenge on him after this fight with him at the UNM NMSU game in October. One of them tragically died and it was similar, like, you know, clearly these two had a previous beef potentially from that old fight. I know right. that this is probably an open investigation, but two young people pull guns. They had guns on them on a campus, which is very concerning as, a, you know, a, a citizen. Somebody said to me after that case or after hearing about it, you know, are, are fights no longer just handled with fists anymore, it seems like. And that's always been, you know, a, a, and it's a great example. And, and just to be clear, we're not part of that investigation. So I know what you guys report in the news, um, but I know the type, right? Uh, and it, it's it's always been around what happened to fist fights when I was a kid in the South Valley. I heard, you know, whatever happened to just duking it out. Yeah, I get it. Um, but again, that might come back to that factor too, and we don't know the answers, but there's just more guns than ever in homes and in cars. They get taken. 
Um, I mean, I interviewed a, a murder suspect once who before the murder said him and his partner were out trying to steal guns from cars. And I was like, well, how do you, what do you mean? Like, is that like a random kind of fishing expedition? He's like, oh no, you just look for like the trucks with like uh, hunting stickers on them, thin blue lines, uh, camouflage. Uh, I guarantee they have a gun in the car. And I was like, that's a really valid point. They probably do have a gun in the car. He's like, yeah, so we just look for trucks with those kinds of decals and stickers. And we roll the dice that they probably got a gun in there. So we hit them more aggressively. Wow. Um, and so it's like, yeah, you know, you get to think, think like a criminal. Right. And that's, that's what they were doing. So guns are, there's a lot of guns out there. Social media is allowing different social connections that before you had to live in the neighborhood to know them or see them, you don't need that any longer. And probably other factors too, that we're just, we can't see clearly right now. So a staffing related question, currently APD has around 878 sworn officers as of today from the latest numbers from the communications department, and it's budgeted for a little over a thousand. Uh, we know that Mayor Tim Keller and his administration now in his second term uh, has been pushing for more officers. Does the department feel like it's still challenging, though, to recruit and retain police officers in the city? I think there's always going to be a challenge and there always has been, right? Because you need a certain type of candidate to put in, right? It's, uh, uh, there's interest in it, but there's a certain baseline of a person that, that we want to be a, our best police officer. So you have to filter through and really test that pool because as much as you want to hire, you definitely don't want to hire the wrong person as a police officer. That's much more costly than just not having someone in the space. So I think our recruiting department and, and the academy does an outstanding job in advertising for APD and getting the word out there. And, you know, let's be honest, part of even our, our clearance rate and what we've done in homicide and the digital intelligence team, these are all recruiting tools as a secondary objective. They are. People want to solve murders. Do you, do you want to do it too? Apply here, right? This is how you do it. So it's, it's always going to be a challenge because we need a certain skill set. But I think we do exceptional at trying to do this. And again, nationwide, you've seen, especially during the pandemic, not just on law enforcement and lots of job markets, just absolute attrition and, and absenteeism that went on. We weren't not affected by this. And we're a large agency that has to maintain a large amount of, of employees that have to have a certain state certification. So we're kind of unlike lots of other even government jobs because we can't just hire anyone and say you're a cop like the, the Department of Public Safety has to agree. They got to get, you know, 30 some weeks of training, then on the job training, like it's it's quite the quite the pool. So we're, we're always trying to, to innovate and and get as many as we can on. Let's talk about some of the newer or more focused approaches that the department is taking to solve violent crimes this year. One of the obvious questions that I have is how is the homicide clearance rate this year so high? 90 plus percent when I saw that number is pretty good compared to other years that we've seen. Well, we, we were able to take a systematic approach and kind of like it sounds corny, but get back to the basics of, of investigating. And, uh, you know, I use the analogy that a, a good detective is like a quarterback in football. I don't need you to score every touchdown. I don't need you to even throw every touchdown. I do need you to know what all 11 players on your team do. I need you to listen to probably like seven coaches in your headset, tell you what's going on and what you should do. You should review film between plays in between games. Mm. I need you to know what the defense is going to do, right? Which is actually the defense, even in a criminal justice sense. And 
use the best you know, risk reward system to move that ball forward. So not everything is a Hail Mary 80 yard pass. And sometimes in investigations, we do that. We try to shoot for the moon, you know, cause it's, it's like the Dateline special or the movie I just saw to catch, to catch this killer. But in reality, it's lots of little two, three yard plays that get these cases done. So how did we do that? Uh, we, lots of ways, right? One was a digital intelligence team to get that physical evidence, right? Not certain, you know, not uh, testimonial, but physical evidence with a big focus on it with experts. But the other big way is that we instituted um, mandatory check-ins on open murder cases at two days, 60 days, and now six months in, if the case is still open, the detective sits down with his chain of his or her chain of command including the crime lab, including maybe the DA's office, and we roundtable the case. And I contrast that because before it was to each detective themselves, right? And that's not for a department our size with as many cases as we get, that wasn't as effective as we needed it to be. You're kind of relying on like an all-star detective to do a, to do a great job. And in reality, we're, up to, we're at 16 detectives right now. I need all 16 detectives to be doing a really great job. So that's really helped us find sometimes, oh, wow, I think we're there, guys. Like we have one detective, he is, he is really smart, he is like quiet, and he's methodical, but he's maybe you know, not always as confident as he probably should be that his case is ready. So when he presents a case, I tell him, I'm like, you're about to give me a winner, I bet. And he's like, well, I don't know, sir. And then he says it, I'm like, oh my God, send the warrant to the DA's office. And then they're like, oh, yep, approved. Judge is like, sounds good. So, hey, you know, we got to check in on that stuff. So we have found a lot of success in doing that. And now what it's done, it's created this culture for the homicide detectives. They're used to it. They know two days after a new homicide comes in, unless we arrest. In some cases, we arrest the day of, like the Thanksgiving case, right? We don't meet on that case. But they know they're going to meet with us. We're going to make an investigative plan right there. If the case is still open in two months, and it's okay if it is, we're going to meet again. If it's open in six months and it's okay if it is, we're going to meet again. And each time is going to be this incremental step. Cool. When we met here, we talked about this. What's happened since? Do you have, are you having issues getting some evidence tested? Like, like let your, let your people help you out here. Right. And so uh, I think that is really a big part of it as well. We also started a a detective academy, which I'll tell you as a cop for 19 years, um, everything's patrol, patrol, patrol. And then it's like patrol plus if you just go somewhere else. It's like, cool, I get to wear jeans. Um, a detective academy really tells the officers and the, and, and the department, we're taking this serious. It's now up to a three-week training class to, to you want to be a detective? Pass this. Mm. It's a challenge for them. So again, that's setting the culture and it's giving them the skill set in there. And so some of our new homicide detectives, and we have several they have almost no detective experience outside of they went to the detective academy and now they're in a system that really caters to team support. You have subject matter experts that will come in and, and, and help guide you, but you're still the quarterback on the field. Get out there, young man. Go, go, go do that play. So we have found a good formula. Um, the detectives, you know, mostly appear to, to, to enjoy it. There's always, you know, it's change, right? But mm-hmm. they, they appear to enjoy it. And we are absolutely solving more cases. And, and I think that all those things are a big part of it. Training, uh, check-ins, uh, the digital team, like it's more physical evidence. We have a good relationship with the current DA's office. Like we're very hopeful that it remains that way as that switches out. And at the end of the day, like let's take, let's take murders to jail, just period. That's it. It seems like a lot less working in silos perhaps, and a lot more collaborative work. Absolutely. Yes. That's, that's absolutely what it is. 
do you have any examples, other examples of, of work that the digital intelligence team or maybe just digital forensic evidence that has been put forward and how that is being used to solve crimes that would have otherwise been a lot tougher to solve? I mean, I, I can't understate um, the fact that they work on 100% of homicide cases that come in. We've yet to find the one case that doesn't have some kind of digital evidence. It just, we haven't seen it yet. Wow. Um, but you know, I'll use one recently. Last week, we arrested a gentleman named Michael Kelly. Well, not we, the U.S. Marshals arrested him in Louisiana. A man wanted for an Albuquerque murder and suspected in close to a dozen more shootings has been arrested in Louisiana. U.S. Marshals say a fugitive task force took Michael Kelly into custody this morning at his place of business following a tip to Crime Stoppers. Now, he went by Louisiana, by the way, and he was found in Louisiana, so that's detective work right there for you. <laughs> but his case was a combination of technologies, actually, that our department used. One first was ShotSpotter, which can listen for and, and detect shots. It heard the shots that were fired into a woman getting killed uh, in her car in an apartment parking lot up in the, the kind of tramway and central-ish area of town. When officers found her deceased, it turned into a homicide call out. Um, there was casings on the ground. So here's our next part of technology, the Niven program. The casings were collected and they leave fingerprints on them, right? Not literal fingerprints, but as the casing is ejected through a gun or fired the, the projectile, it leaves certain markings and there's a firing pin that leaves a certain kind of scar on the casing. These are all really unique and the ATF can actually tell us these, the same gun fired these two casings. We got a hit on Nibin from the ATF that, hey, your murder weapon was also, there's 10 other shooting incidents in Albuquerque where shot spotter or police were called and you guys collected casings in just what apparent random shootings or drive-by shootings. I don't even know. There's no victims, but just like there were shots fired, officers found casings, they matched all of them. So this is all really good news, right? We developed the suspect, Michael Kelly's his name. Uh, we also find a casing between the hood of his car and his windshield, which I know whenever you guys shoot by your driver's door of your car, um, <laughs> the casings eject there. Yeah. So it matched, which is also really good. But even then the prosecutor was somewhat like, yeah, there's still some circumstantial problems, right? Because, I mean, it's on his car, but it's on the outside of his car. It's not inside. How else can we do this? The digital uh, in intelligence team working with the detective were able to get phone records back from the carrier who not only could put his phone at the murder, also put it every single place those 10 other shootings occurred over like a two or three month span. Wow. So now you're like, well, what are the odds that your phone number is at every shooting that the ATF tells me the same gun fired it that matches our murder scene and the one found on, on your car windshield? Right. I mean, that's like to not believe it's you is 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 too much. Right. And the prosecutors agreed. And let's go ahead and charge that guy. And, and that is going to be the basis of the evidence. Right. Um, we don't have an eyewitness who said I saw him shoot mm -hmm. that I know of. We don't have him admitting to it that I know of. This is all evidence based cases. And again, to bring that back home. This is what we're trying to really push here. Like, let's not wait for the person with a drug addiction to come tell us what happened. Let's go find the evidence. And that's kind of what the ghost unit was at the sheriff's department too with human trafficking. If you think a human trafficking victim is gonna come tell you about 
their 23 sex partners in three weeks as they were being moved across state lines, you got something else coming to you because that's they don't want to go tell some cop with a camera running about that. But can you get a, an idea of what's happening? And now let's go find the evidence. Mm. And the next time you go and talk to them, I can show you motel receipts and text messages. Now we have a human trafficking case. Okay. Well, you've, you've already mentioned a lot of these in the conversation, but one of my questions is going forward, um, are there any other different approaches that you hope to implement or things that you're focused on for the coming year to bring even more success to solving crimes in our city and bringing violent offenders to justice? Yeah. Chief Medina and I are working on a, a new approach to, to improve other investigative areas inside the department. And the two areas that he wants to focus on is the persons that we deem dangerous, right? And this is the whole constitutional amendment about who stays in jail. And also people that the court's declaring mentally incompetent, meaning no matter what we do in terms of arresting them, they will just always have the case dismissed. You know, so on, on, the, on the first tact, what we're, we're looking to do is really strengthen up and help identify quickly with the prosecutor's office who do we think should be in jail until trial? I mean, that's really the basic question, right? Do they need to be here until trial or not? And if we do think that, that we have to move with a lot of speed for the court because the court has an obligation per the law to make a quick determination. Do you get out of jail or do you stay in? And and I agree that it should be quick, right? This is people's liberty that we're, we're dealing with. They shouldn't wait months and months for us to decide if they're dangerous. So we have to speed that process up. We have to be quicker and faster about it. And we have to give the, the courts the evidence they need to make these decisions. A lot of times we might fall a little bit short in giving all the information that could have been available. You talk about silos, right? We gotta be better at sharing that information so that the judges are actually equipped to make the decision we think they probably would make more often if they actually knew the 30,000 foot view of what this person's doing. You talk about like these shoplifters that arm themselves. The second the the clerk says, hey, you, you're not paying for it. And they pull a knife out or they show him a gun like that's like really scary stuff. Um, now, nobody was shot or stabbed. But what does that do to those employees? What does that do to the, the psyche of the business to have that happen? Yeah. Um, we you know, that's just one example. But we, you know, that's probably a drug addicted person stealing. They have a drug problem, but again, let's come back to what are they willing to do for that drug addiction? Well, most drug addicts won't pull the knife out. I do want them just in rehab programs and they do not belong in jail. Are you willing to pull a weapon out or conspire to make a plan to shoot someone to get your drugs? Yeah, you're in a different category. And I think we should be telling the court, we think their, their desperation for the drug is causing really predictable violent behavior and we can't keep taking chances that they will or won't do this the next time. I think that speaks to one of the questions we have next for you here. Um, we still know people are yeah, very concerned about violent crime, especially when perhaps they're witnessing an incident like this. Maybe they're not involved directly in the altercation, so to speak, but maybe it is that person in Walmart who's witnessing that exchange between a suspect and a clerk. And, you know, they're very scared just to see that. What would you say to people who are still worried about their safety is there any sort of relief you can forecast to some of the violence that we've been seeing here? I mean, just because a lot of our murders are people that are involved in these arguments or drug deals or gun deals, it doesn't mean that someone not involved in that could be a murder victim because they can or a shooting victim or a robbery victim. You know, the device, the same advice I give my, my kids 
if you see the drama starting to escalate or break out, it is time to turn around and leave that place. You know, I, I, I want people to stand up for others that are in danger and in needs. Right. And, it, but we also have to balance that as well. Words can hurt us, but oftentimes it's better just to turn around and walk away and, and let some time and distance help separate that versus you see somebody like in an act of threat, attacking someone or attacking you, you have an absolute right to defend yourself. But on these other situations, walk away, call police, let, let them deal with this, call the onsite security, let, let them deal with this. It's just, it's not ever worth it. And I've, you know, I've met with these homicide families, these survivors, right? And they have so many questions that no one will ever be able to answer about what happened and what led up to their son or daughter's you know, um, death. And they never feel like they died for a good cause. It was, it is this this drama that escalated, it was a drug addiction too far. Um, and I don't have a good answer for them. So, you know, people got to walk away more from these disputes. People should also understand the general public is armed more than ever. I think in our entire American history, we've never been so armed. Um, I'm not taking a stance on guns. I'm just giving you a fact. And they teach cops in the academy. Every situation is dangerous that you're at because you just brought a gun to it. This is like police academy training. Don't forget, there's always a gun there because you're there. Yeah. So that automatically makes it lethal the second you show up. So we are certainly hopeful that in 2023, we will not be having another conversation about a record homicide year. Obviously, it's a good thing to be solving crimes. But are you optimistic to see maybe a decline in violent crimes in the next year? Or do we have so many things like you mentioned working against us. I wouldn't be in this job if I wasn't optimistic that it was going to decrease. I just wish I was better at predicting when it was, and I'm not I'm terrible at it. I don't think anyone's really good at it, but I, I'm hopeful that it will decrease. I'm excited about some of the new directions we're going to try to take to give the court better, better information on it. People that are having competency issues, but they're on the streets and they're harassing businesses, they're trespassing. There has to be an answer there too. It might be a legislative one. It, it's probably not a police one, but we're the ones that get called. So I'm excited to try to work on on some of these issues uh, and hopefully remove vulnerable victims from the areas. Right? If you have a drug addiction, you might you could just be a victim. So how do we make you safe? Right? Uh, let's make sure we have a great partnership with federal prosecutors, but let's make sure that violent people we take their guns if they're felons or we arrest them, we put them in jail. And especially on the crimes that already occurred, it's a thorough investigation. It is an evidence-based investigation. These are just more successful and we get a good outcome for this person to, to rehabilitate themselves. And if that's jail in prison, it is. Um, that's not up to us though. We, we can't care about that. Anything else that we didn't ask you that you felt like is important to, to talk about or mention? You know, I'll just, the, the men and women of the Albuquerque Police Department are really dedicated to this job. This is not a job that you can easily just stand by and, and watch happen. You, you have to be an active participant. And the detectives that I help supervise day in and day out are, are a picture of this. They have passion and heart for this. A lot of times they're just trying to understand and navigate systems and processes to do the best job. So um, it doesn't work without them. They almost all come from our community. So even back to your recruiting question, like you want to make a difference, I can't think of a better way to, to do it in 2022 than, than to use your skills for this type of job. Deputy Commander, thank you. Yeah. It was a very insightful conversation per usual, but yeah, I, I learned a lot and it's always a pleasure talking about these things. Thanks for having us, having me on. 
Thanks again to APD's Kyle Hartsock for coming in and talking about this with us. We know it always is of a lot of interest in the Albuquerque community. What is happening with homicides this year again as of today when we're recording this here on December 6th, 115 victims across, I believe it is 108 cases in total. So it's obviously a lot of this happening. It is always good to hear how those break down, what types of cases they are, and the work that obviously APD has done over the last decade to change how they're approaching solving these crimes. It really, I think, can't be understated how much of a difference maker it seems that digital intelligence team is um, with a as the department says uh, more than 90 percent clearance rate that's very different from many years past where it used to hover around 40 50 percent yeah i always appreciate these conversations with kyle hartsock too because he's very much taking a solutions based approach to solving crime in our community as he mentioned, and we've all mentioned before, you know, we have an investment into making this community better and safer as well. So always appreciate these conversations. If you have an idea or a story that you would like to see us cover or somebody that you want to see us or hear us interview, feel free to reach out. I'm gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. I think it's a really good way to put it. Who would you like to hear interviewed on the New Mexico News podcast? It's one thing I don't think we've directly asked that you just did there, Gabby. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, please do send us your ideas. We really do read our emails, um, even if we don't reply immediately. I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com and also at chris mckee tv on Twitter. Thanks for listening.